Welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child using the method of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I'm your host, Carrie Meckie Lozano. Welcome back to the podcast, friends. I am so excited that you are here. Today, we are diving into our last chapter of the religious potential of the child, chapter 11 on anthropological catechesis. Have your kids say that five times fast because that is a mouthful. Kathy Yohani is joining us on the podcast today to dive into what is anthropological catechesis, this very short chapter in the book, but a really beautiful, big topic. She describes it as understanding who the person is as a central point in catechesis, in our discovering who God is. How beautiful. I hope you enjoy. Kathy Yohani, welcome back to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. Oh, Carrie, it's so good to be with you. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you back, especially for this chapter. But before we get into that, could you please tell us who you are and how you got involved in Catechesis of the Good Shepherd? I'd be happy to. Thank you. Yeah, I have been working um, with the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd for over two decades, which has been such a blessing. Um, I'm trained at levels one, two, and three, and I'm a formation leader at levels one, two, and three. Um, I was blessed to do this work in a Montessori school, and I have Montessori elementary training. Um, And I'm also really blessed to be part of the um, journal, uh, the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd Journal, which I know you have um, mentioned on your podcast before, and I'm so thankful for that and so thankful for your podcast. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's always fun to get to talk to people like you. I recently was flipping through a bunch of the journals and I caught your name in many of the articles. So that's really neat. Well, I'm excited to have you back on the podcast because you have studied anthropology. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. That's my academic background. So I was so excited, you know, when I first found the the religious potential of the child to see that she titled her last chapter Anthropological Catechesis. So I know it's perfect for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bet that this is probably one of the most intimidating chapters. I mean, even the title, like it's like Anthropological Catechesis. What on earth is Anthropological Catechesis? Yeah, yeah. It, it does sound a little bit more imposing maybe than it really is. But I think we could break it down. Catechesis, as we know, is the aim of it is to put people not only in touch, but in communion, in intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's what John Paul mm-hmm. II said um, in uh, Catechesi Tridende. And so catechesis isn't just about knowing about um, the faith, but also knowing a person. Um, and we in, in our training like to talk about the the root of that word catechesis has echo in it. Um, And so we're echoing the good news, but um, in catechesis of the good shepherd in particular, we're echoing the good news as it, um, as it manifests in the life of a child. So we're also echoing not only the good news of the gospel, but the way that the children speak the gospel to us. So that's the Mm -hmm. catechesis part, the anthropological part of anthropological catechesis is is just really it means putting the human person at the center of the catechesis. And and I think that that's an important thing to think about too. Of course Maria Montessori was an anthropologist and she herself was so interested in um, big philosophical questions about what it meant to be human, 
um, the difference, the you know, the different impacts between nature and nurture. So I kind of think anthropology is um, is sort of applied philosophy. It's like taking these big philosophical questions: what does it mean to be human? What are the things that all humans have in common? And sort of um, taking those big questions and looking at the data of human experience, and and helping helping to answer those questions by using that data of human experience. And really anthropologists have two main tools that they use to do their work. Um, one is cross-cultural comparison. And Sophia in this chapter writes about that. She writes about the, as the catechesis emerged, they found that in all different places in different cultures and different socioeconomic backgrounds, there were certain themes that the child in, in all of these different um, situations responded with joy to. And so, um, so she herself in this, in this very chapter shows that she is using that anthropological tool of cross-cultural comparison. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's a part of the anthropological catechesis. I think the other tool that anthropologists use is participant observation. So if you think of an anthropologist, like they go off for two years and live among a certain group of people, and then they write their, you know, write up their research, but they've really lived among the people and tried to understand from that internal perspective. And I just think that's what Sophia has been calling us to do in this book um, is, is to walk with the children, to accompany the children. Even Gianna, the title of Gianna's book, Listening to God with Children, we place mm -hmm. ourselves, you know, in the community with the child, not above the child, not as a master, um, not as a teacher, but um, just as a as a fellow human and as a soul walking along a path to the divine. So I, I feel like um, participant observation is is again our heritage as catechists. You know, we read the 32 points of the catechesis. And there's so much in there about the catechist task is to observe um, and how important that is that we're observing the child. So in some ways, um, I feel as though the work that we're doing already is embodying sort of the best of that discipline of anthropology. And I just thought that was really interesting in, in thinking about what she might mean by anthropological catechesis. Mm -hmm. um, I think she goes a little deeper, though, um, because she's sort of critiquing some different strains um, within the, that she sees in the catechetical world at the time in which she's writing this. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she talks about that there's a crisis of incarnation in regards to catechesis on page 135. Yeah, that's pretty strong language, I thought. It really is. You know, a crisis of incarnation. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that really struck me, this crisis of incarnation. Um, yeah, she talks about an, an older approach that was disincarnate. And I think she was referring to sort of a um, a more academic formulation where faith is handed on as abstract propositions. Um, and maybe in that model, the person being catechized is invited to listen and accept and maybe even memorize truths that have already been pre-digested for him or her. Um, and she, she talks about that as on page 135, she says, catechesis supplied a carefully delineated survey of truths, yet it did not inflame life. And so mm. I think her hope and our hope, too, as catechists in this is that we really inflame life, that, that this isn't just a head knowledge, but connecting the head and the heart and the hand. Um, and she spends so much of, of this whole book talking about 
um, ways to avoid the pitfalls of that disincarnate approach, um, you know, not to immobilize, not to resort to definitions that immobilize the understanding and just to really realize we're working we're working with a mystery here. And so that's why she proposes Jesus's pedagogy, the um, the parable method, and also the church's pedagogy, the liturgical method, the method of signs. And so I think she's telling us that, you know, here are some good ways to combat that disincarnate approach. So, but yes, so much wisdom there. You know, she's writing this, I think, in the late 1970s originally. And um, she, she talks there about this um, idea of a vague divine being. Um, it's not God who's being denied, but it's it's Jesus and his incarnation that's being denied. And and I just think that maybe if, if she were around today, she would see that oh, she was almost prophetic, that it got, it's, it's become um, so much more acute, this crisis that she writes about, that our Christianity is kind of watered down. Right. I thought the same thing. I was thinking that the crisis in 1970s that she was talking about, man, what would she think about today <laughs> if she felt that it was such a crisis then? Yeah. 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 You know, today, um, sociologists have done like surveys of religious belief in our country in particular. And they say that um, a lot of people have kind of watered down their religious belief and it's this sort of moralistic therapeutic deism and i feel like that's exactly what she was describing here this deism mm-hmm. this sort of distant god and there's this distant god but he wants us to be good that's the moralistic part of it and if we are then we'll feel good and that's the therapeutic part of it and um, that is so different um, from what sophia invites us to from what the catechesis invites us to really encounter a person um, and inflame life, like your whole life can be changed by an encounter with the person of the Good Shepherd. And as you grow, he walks with you so different than this sort of disincarnate approach that, that we see in our world today. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about what she would say if she were here right. today, for sure. Well, this chapter, even though it is very short... And it is one of those chapters that I feel like you have to read a few times because it's it's deep. Yeah, it's deep. Um, there are so many things in here that I have highlighted a lot, which, mm-hmm. you know, just like we say with the whole book. But there are a few quotes that Sophia has that are just really profound that we could sit and just have a whole episode just talking on about it. Yeah. And I know you liked this one, too. It's on page 139. She says, a negative human situation is not adequate reason to resign ourselves to a failure in the realm of catechesis, but rather it becomes an exceedingly valid motive for trying to make catechesis a living encounter of love with God through Christ. Yeah, that living encounter. Yes, that's such a beautiful, such a beautiful quote. And it is sort of a rallying cry, isn't it, for us as catechists? And maybe, mm-hmm. Carrie, you've had experiences too of working with children who even at young ages have had negative life experiences or some kind of a trauma in their life. And just Sophia's assuring us here that um, that there are no barriers that the Lord can't breach, that, you know, his desire is for every child's heart and every adult's heart too. Um, and so that we have to um, proceed with hope. But yeah, I think what's behind that um, particular quote is another criticism. She kind of was 
gently criticizing the previous disincarnate approach that we might call more academic or scholastic, but then she's also criticizing an overly anthropological catechesis, and that's one that situates the, um, the catechesis in a lived experience rather than an exigence. And she makes that distinction really clearly. Um, I, I think she spends most of her chapter kind of trying to talk about that. And this brings her right back to those monastery roots about, you know, what is it that is common to humans? What is it that is um, fundamental to being a human? What are those deep needs? And she calls those exigencies, vital exigencies. And she says, if we if we base our catechesis on those rather than on a life experience, which could be a negative situation, as as in that quote you just read, um, then we're going to we're going to satiate that deep hunger. But if we keep it on the level of human experience, we're going to miss out on on what's what children and adults are really hungry for. So I think that's a really important point of this chapter. Um, is her implicit criticism of of an anthropological catechesis that's too surface level. And when I read that, what came to my mind was um, an experience that I had with my daughter years ago when she was preparing for um, for First Communion. And she had been in the atrium, but our parish at the time, you know, gave kids a little booklet to work through. And the booklet had one chapter about like a family meal. And it was kind of this little story about a birthday celebration in a kitchen and and then at the end of this story about a birthday celebration, it said, you know, the family of God gathers at mass. And my daughter kind of looked at me and she's like, is that it? <laughs> you know, she was kind of like, yeah, yes, the family of God. But it's it's more than that. Right, mom? Like she she knew that it was, as we say in catechesis, a moment of particular intensity, that it couldn't just be watered down to, you know, a family gathers at a birthday celebration, you know, Sophia kind of is is sort of asking these rhetorical questions like, you know, if you're going to situate catechesis in experience, can't we also include the religious experience, which is this moment of particular intensity? So there on page 136, she's asking these sort of um, rhetorical questions like, you know, in order for them to be life-giving, must they depend on experiences that are not religious, directly religious in character, she says, you know, make this about liturgy. And I, I it called to mind our model altar presentation where, yes, we, we may say that the family of God gathers around the table, but then we're lighting these beautiful candles and proclaiming the death and resurrection of the Lord. We're showing this beautiful chalice and this beautiful patent, and we're, we're pointing out that the religious experience is the high point of the human experience. And so, Again, it's meeting this vital need, and that's different than just letting it rest in, you know, a birthday in a kitchen, which some children who had a negative life experience, maybe maybe they didn't have happy birthdays, <laughs> you know, so we can't pin our catechesis on that. We have to pin our catechesis on something so much more sturdy, which is, which is Christ and his church. Mm -hmm. And these vital needs are so universal because Sophia speaks throughout the book about how she has seen this across cultures, across the whole world, these same vital needs, the same need to be, um, let's see, she says the essential need of love given and received and how that manifests in all these different ways that the children have shown us in the materials 
by being drawn towards these certain materials that we do like the altar work and how that speaks to the heart of so many children or the good shepherd work or the mustard seed of the small turns to great. Like these have spoken to children across cultures and across time, which brings in that whole like, I love that that is what we do. That's so like what you say, anthropological, Mm -hmm. that we study the children in order to see what their vital needs are, their spiritual vital needs are that speak to children and people everywhere. Yeah. Always. Carrie, I know you worked in Haiti, right? So you've had, and now you're in Texas, so you've had some of this cross-cultural experience yourself, right? You've probably seen this. Right, right. Yeah. The children are very drawn the same, the, the children are drawn to the same materials in Haiti that they are drawn to here in Texas. Like they're, it speaks to these vital needs of I am loved, mm-hmm. I am seen, that and that we even as adults, we just get so distracted by all the details. But um, it's really beautiful to see how universal it all is, all these, these catechetical vital needs that, that Sophia speaks about in this chapter. Yeah, and then... Um, in some ways, I feel like this chapter is like a catechist examination of conscience, kind of, <laughs> because mm. then as I read this chapter, her final chapter, I'm like, okay, so how closely am I sticking to those those themes that you just articulated that she says in this chapter on page 137 and 138, how, how essential am I being? We know that information, we always call ourselves back to the essential, right? Am I, am I really doing that? Am I sticking to these beautiful themes that full that, that that unfold and there's so so much that comes out of them but you always have to return to that core proclaim faithfully that core um, and then just follow the child's vital needs there so yeah so so much to call us to you know, so much wisdom in this very short little chapter right right so then on page 140 there's another quote Mm-hmm. That I, I love it because you and I highlighted the same things. So on page 140, she says, a mode of presentation that precludes the catechist from making direct links seems to allow room for a greater range of application because any specific reference is limiting. Furthermore, it seems to us more respectful of the child to avoid directly touching those personal, effective chords that should not be touched, or that the child might rightly want to remain private. Mm. Kathy, would you speak into that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That, again, is like a catechist examination of conscience. Have I respected the privacy of the children? You know, sometimes when we're giving a presentation and in the back of our minds, you know, we know the doctrinal content, we we can see all these different ways that this, you know, this scripture could, could lead us. Um, we have to hold ourselves back from rushing, from rushing the child or forcing them to, to a place of moral self-reference or, you know, to whatever it is that we want them to get out of it. We have to kind of follow their pacing on it. And I just feel like she, you know, in her characteristic, beautiful language is, is letting us know that, that we have to avoid directly touching on those personal effective chords. There sometimes are children who can, and talk about especially moral things um, with reference to the parable that you're reading or um, with reference to other people, but they're not yet able to turn it towards themselves. And we just have to be so gentle in um, in accompanying them on that journey and, and sensing when they're when they are ready for that and supporting 
supporting them, but not pushing just because we want to, you know, move on to do another presentation with another child. We, or we're aware of the time. We have to just let, um, let the Holy Spirit work within the child. And that's a tricky thing to do, I think, as an adult, because our culture is so efficient and time, uh, time conscious. Um, so I, yeah, I loved, I loved that quote. I, I will say that this year, um, we just recently had our Pentecost celebration. And so the children, you know, they choose, they choose a gift of the Holy Spirit that they most desire in their life at this moment. And, and I knew never to ask why did you choose that gift? I, I, that seems very much that intrusiveness that Sophia is warning us against. Um, but as we were reflecting afterwards, the children spontaneously started sharing. Someone said, oh, I chose fortitude because I, you know, I have anger issues and I, I need strength to be able to control myself when I get angry. And I just remember looking at my, um, my co-teacher and just with a look of, of astonishment that the children were so, um, so first of all, mature and self-aware, <laughs> but also I think that they felt, um, they, they trusted our community by this point um, so that they could share those things that we hadn't pushed them too quickly um, into areas that were private. And they were really, um, they felt as though they could, they could have confidence in sharing who they were at a very deep level. Um, and so I was just really grateful for that. What a gift that you were able to see what's underneath the surface there. We did, So as, as catechists, we very rarely get to see that. Yes, yes. So it was, it was this beautiful glimpse. Um, but I think, as you said, it gets back to that vital, um, vital need of belonging. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, you named it, I think children and adults need, need to feel seen and heard, and they need to know that they belong. Um, I'm thinking of a particular child who is somewhat defiant and untethered at the beginning of the catechetical year. And really slowly, we were able to reach her at a more profound level. And she began to relax and to trust um, and to find her particular place in the atrium. And, um, you know, how, how did we help her to do that? Just through the regular presentations that we would have offered any other child. Um, and also through the respect and the interest and the friendship that we showed her as an individual. Um, and the invitation, again, that we extended to every child to, to plan um, and to lead prayer and to be part of that. So just the slow life and work of the atrium over several months, um, it, it answers this profound, vital need within children. And um, she began to relax and open up and make really good work choices and find her place. So it's that belonging that you, that you named before that's really important. I love that. I love that she found that in the atrium, which means that she associates that feeling with God. That's, yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, before we finish, there's another quote that Sophia has right at the end of the chapter, which, you know, almost highlights it just by her placement of it. She says at the very end, in some manner, we provide the instruments that the child must use by herself. We follow a method that responds to the child's unspoken request. Help me to do it by myself. I love this. Once we always say, help me to do this by myself, that Montessori Mm -hmm. echo. But I love this because we are teaching the children how to seek God themselves. Yes. Yeah, Carrie, I love that. I thought it was 
it was such um, an honest and a fitting conclusion to the chapter. You know, honest because really she's saying, you know, we provide the instruments that the child must use for herself, by herself. It's showing the limit of like we're we're doing all this work and we're we're hoping and we're walking with the children, but there, um, you know, there's a limit to to what we can do. Um, and I think that ties again to anthropological catechesis because a really important aspect of the human person, which is at the center of anthropological catechesis, a really important aspect is freedom, right? God gave us free will. And so to me, this quote is really an acknowledgement of the ultimate freedom and destiny of the children that we're serving in, in the atrium. Um, so recently, a priest friend of mine said, hey, you might like this book. It's called The Risk of Education. And uh, it's by a, a priest, Luigi Gisani, who I, when I read the book, I thought, well, I wonder if Sophia, because <laughs> they're both Italian and lived around the same time, but so many of his ideas sound so much like her ideas. Um, and he, he worked with older children, with youth more, um, but uh, but he has this beautiful way of putting it. He says, we have to stop on the threshold of the mystery of the freedom of the child. And um, I just thought that's kind of what Sophia is saying, that that we stop on the threshold of the mystery of the freedom of the child um, because the child has an origin apart from us and a destiny apart from us. And just, you know, how different is it when we look at the children as, as souls <laughs> rather than as, you know, a project to be managed or the child, a, a task to be managed for us. You know, I think Sophia really here is calling us to understand that the children have um, a life and a destiny outside of our atrium, and that destiny is with the Good Shepherd himself. And so our job is just to be the matchmaker, um, to connect the child with the, the Good Shepherd who loves the child so very much and so much better than we ever could. Um, so that that last quote that you read there just really uh, spoke to me to, to, to let us know that the goal is to equip um, equip the child for an independent but beautiful faith life that's that's um, oriented towards Jesus and towards his church, towards the community as well. So, hmm. so much goodness in this little short chapter. <laughs> I know, I know. And I hope that people will be less likely to skip over the chapter based off of the intimidating title <laughs> now after listening to this, because there is a lot of good. There's There were some... There's a lot highlighted in this chapter. Yes. Like I said, that we could sit and just talk about this one quote here and this one quote there. And I agree that I think it is such a gut check for us as adults with children in our lives um, where our place is as next to the child, but also as an intense observer mm -hmm. of the child and um, their relationship with God and how that could be a guide to us as well. So yeah. This, this is a good chapter. Definitely, definitely worth a read or two or three, however many times it takes you to really absorb yes. the density. So Yes, yes. It's, it's so good. It's such a gem here at, at the end of her book. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and your experience as an anthropologist. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Carrie. So good to talk with you. Always great to talk to you too, Kathy. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Good Shepherd in the Child podcast. Remember that we have a list on our website that has which chapters of our different catechesis of the Good Shepherd books, like the Religious Potential of the Child, which chapters correspond with different episodes that we have done on the podcast. And this is to help you do different book studies with your friends, with fellow parents, with fellow grandparents, with fellow catechists, by yourself. This is just to aid your discussion, aid your studying of this beautiful work and what the children have shown us about who God is and what God has shown us about who the children are. We also have some study questions with the religious potential of the child. So you can check all of those out. I have links in our show notes. And if you need a copy of the religious potential of the child, we have a third edition, the most updated edition that Sophia did before she passed away. We have those in our store. So I have a link to that in our show notes as well. This week, we are lifting up our benefactor member, the catechist husband. He would like to remind everyone to start looking towards the items that you need for your atria for the fall now, giving your vendors as much time as possible to get you what you need before the new year. If you go on the Catechist Husband's website, he makes beautiful materials for our atria, beautiful different woodworks that are sometimes can be the harder things to make or have access to. So go check out his website and make sure that you give your vendors plenty of time to get you what you need. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. We would like to thank all the members because you are making this podcast possible. If you would like to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd or to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for listening this week. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.